Church, let's continue our series here in the letter of 1 John. If you grab your Bibles and turn there with me, if you're new or new to Scripture, you'll find the New Testament letter of 1 John in the very back of your Bible, just after 2 Peter, just before Jude and Revelation, right towards the end. And today we pick up in the next section of chapter 4. Prior to Holy Week, we spent a lot of time working all the way up through verse 12, and then I reserved our time in verse 9 and 10 for Holy Week. We, we All three sermons, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Resurrection Sunday, we really drew out of that gospel of love as John makes it so wonderfully clear in verse 9 and 10. Before we get to our passage today in verse 13 through 17, look with me at just these wonderful verses that precede our passage. Let's be reminded of these good truths. First John chapter 4 7 through 12 says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His perfect love is perfected in us. John is going to build on the confidence that we are to have. We who trust in Christ as Savior and Lord. Confidence that we do indeed abide in God and that God abides in us. We need to be confident of this. And so look with me at our passage, church. 1 John 4, 13-17. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God and God in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because he is so, also are we in the world. God's good word. Church, let's break this down. Look with me at verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us. The word abide means to stay fixed, to remain, to continue on course, to endure. The practice of staying fixed on God, of enduring in God, remaining in him and God in us is an essential reality of our life in Christ. One that we need to be confident in. 
and living out. First and foremost, let us not overlook or take for granted the amazing fact that we even get to abide in God and that God abides in us at all. For we need to never forget the stark, the damned reality of our sin that separated us from God. We were guilty in sin. We were deserving of His wrath, every one of us. The best person, the the most active, the most caring, the most generous person in the world still falls grossly short of God's holy standard. In sin, He still rightly is separated from us. This is our worst problem in all of life. If you still do not trust in Jesus alone as Savior and Lord, this remains your worst problem in life. Not your failing health. Not struggling relationships. Not money struggles. Not political struggles. No, our worst problem is sin that separates us from the Holy God. The good news of the Gospel is this. But God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's Romans 5.8. This is the good news that changes everything. We whom God gives saving faith in Jesus Christ are reconciled to God. Because of the finished, atoning work of Jesus in our place. That means we are no longer separated from God because of our sin. It means now I get to know Him personally. Not just know about Him, but know Him. Deeper, church, I get to abide in Him. To be steadfast, to remain, to be fixed. Church, this is truly the greatest news, the greatest gift, the greatest reality we could ever know. No promotion, no no horizontal opportunity in this life comes anywhere near this. So when John says, we know that we abide in God and God in us, we need to first and foremost see that this is truly a great gift and to be thankful that it is even possible Second, John wants his Christian brethren to have confidence in this mighty truth. He writes his letters, the first that we're studying now. We'll study the next two as we go. He writes these letters in an effort to reassure the Christian brethren of who we are as children of faith, as children of God, in a world that wants to lie, that wants to deceive, that wants to that wants to get us to get distracted on the storms and on the stuff and on the doubts and on the worries. He wants his beloved blood-bought family to have certainty in what is true. 
certainty and confidence of who we are in Christ. And so in this, John is seeking to safeguard his Christian family against any kind of spiritual amnesia. And we need this too, don't we? We need the Word of God. We need the truths of God regularly echoing in our minds, in our hearts, to be constantly reoriented to these good truths so that we remember who we were when enslaved to sin and so that we remember who we are and have become in Christ as a result of His substitutional atonement in our place. Church, we had no hope for anything lasting, for anything good in eternity, apart from Christ. We had no hope for knowing God, for relationship with God, for abiding in God, apart from Christ. That was our sad and sobering position before salvation. And it remains the sad and sobering condition for all who remain outside of Christ. And if that's you, I'm glad you're here. Keep coming. Keep asking. Keep leaning in. Keep doing the hard work. For for this is the most important thing. This is it. Right? Parents, this is the most important thing for your children. Sat with a beloved family last night just, just talking about that. There's nothing more important in what we're doing with our kids to see them mature, to see them develop, to see them be grounded, to see them take on good habits, to see them learn. There's nothing more important than where they stand with God. They need to see our radical, passionate love for God and His truths, our conviction of these things. It needs to be an ever-present testimony in our lives, in our homes, in our reality. Christ came and died and rose again as we celebrated last Sunday. And as we celebrate every Sunday, the resurrected Christ. We do this every Sunday until He comes again, as He promised He will. Amen? The risen Savior is why we have living hope. Living hope that is guarded by the power of God. 1 Peter 1.3 In Christ the saints have the full assurance of hope until the end. Hebrews 6.11 So John is, in our passage today, verse 13 through 17, going to give us three markers for why we need to be confident, have confidence, that we truly do abide in God and God in us. And these three markers are this. Number one, the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Number two, the testimony of our faith, that trust in Jesus alone for salvation. Number three, our abiding in God's love. Look with me at each of these. Let's start with the first. Confidence that we abide in God 
the gift of the Spirit of God in us. See this in verse 13, 1 John 4, 13. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. By what? He has given us His Spirit so we have confidence. We know that we abide in Him and Him in us. Think about the amazing gift it is to have God the Holy Spirit indwelling our lives after salvation. This is truly a great confidence that God gives us that we abide in Him and Him in us. Jesus promised the gift of the Holy Spirit. John 14, 16, He says, I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper to be, your, be with you forever. To abide. Jesus' word here for helper is parakletos. It's in the Greek, it, it means one who comes alongside. What a gift. It is truly a sweet gift when someone comes alongside us to comfort us, console us, or help us in our time of need, is it not? So can we just pause then and consider the massive blessing it is that God the Holy Spirit comes alongside us in salvation to bless us in so many ways. And so to really understand the blessing of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, let's just do a little bit of remembering of who is God the Holy Spirit, what is His role. Number one, God the Holy Spirit is equal and eternal in the Holy Godhead. Three who are one, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit is the giver of new spiritual life. This is truly significant because apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, all unregenerate people, all those who are dead in sin, separated from God, are, it says, darkened in their understanding and alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. That's Ephesians 4.18. So we are dependent on the critical work of the Holy Spirit to regenerate us. What is dead must be made alive. Right? We're not just sick with sin and well enough on a good day to figure out how to choose God. And No, Scripture is clear. We are dead in sin. We must be made alive. We must be born again, Jesus says to Nicodemus. The hardness of the heart is a dead heart. It must be made alive. The prophecy in Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27 speaks to this work of the Holy Spirit so well. God promises, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit. I will put it within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Church, we must be born again. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. John 3, 5, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. <clears throat> Paul states it clearly in Romans 8, 9, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Now don't miss this. Anyone who is saved has been given spiritual life by the work of regeneration and new birth. 
New spiritual birth. Without this work, without the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit, no one belongs to God or believes in God. Therefore, no one would abide in God without the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the key for our abiding, our remaining fixed. Right? How, how miserable it would be if somehow we got out of all of our death and misery and stood tall for a moment and then found our way back to it. The promise, the good news, the preaching of the Word is that those whom He saves are saved. And He keeps us and He finishes us. And we remain. We abide to the end. John's saying, in all of this controversy, in all these lies that are coming at you, in all the deceptive talk of those who are trying to deceive and the false teachers and the heretical teachings, you need to have confidence that you abide in God and God in you and one of those key markers of the Holy Spirit is within you. The Spirit of God, church, is also the revealer of truth. Jesus calls Him the Spirit of truth in John 14, 17. Jesus also says this in John 14, verse 26, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So later in John's Gospel, Jesus tells His disciples in John 16, 13, that the Spirit of truth will guide you in all truth. Church, the Holy Spirit's critical work in revealing to our minds the truth of God is also a key part of our abiding in God. This is not just a fluffy, supernatural thing that's absent of the Word, like some modern-day Christians like to talk about it. The Spirit doesn't operate and move apart from the Spirit's Word. They never contradict See, so someone can't say, like, I'm good in the Spirit, although I have no value for the Word. That's to not understand the Spirit. They must be together. They will not contradict. We need the whole counsel of God as it relates to all of life, worship, doctrine, Christian living, according to the Word, if we are to grow, to endure, especially endure the temptation that's constantly knocking at the door. The Holy Spirit is the ultimate guide, going before, leading the way, removing obstructions, opening understanding, making all things plain and clear. The wonderful work of the Holy Spirit, abiding. The Holy Spirit is also the convictor of sin. He's the giver of new life, the one who brings regeneration. He's the revealer of truth. He's the convictor of sin. Holy Spirit brings about conviction of sin so that we see it rightly and then we repent of it. This is a huge way the Holy Spirit helps us walk in truth, remain in God. Is yes, we're going to struggle. Yes, we're going to stumble. But we've been given the power to see sin and turn from it now. We didn't have that power when we were dead in sin. To abide in God means we're constantly identifying sin and turning from it. The Spirit's work is to bring to mind the lie, the temptation, so that we see it, we call it what it is, and we turn from it humbly, joyfully. The the, the Christian that's fixed in their identity in Christ is not afraid to even say, here's what I did, here's my sin. And people from the outside look at that. How are you able to testify so openly? Some many have come to our church, they'll hear people share testimony from the stage. To, to admit gross sin. 
How? How does someone do that? Because that person is fixed in their identity in Jesus. Their value, their worth is not in their record. It's not in these things they were miserable at. And so even as we mature, as we mature in faith, we get better and better at humbly admitting sin, confessing sin. I don't need to stand on my record. I don't need to make you think that I'm doing good on my record. I stand on Jesus. So the Spirit does this work in us, and it's great, and it's good. So, before we move from the Holy Spirit, I want to remind us of the confidence the Holy Spirit is to us by, the seal, by sealing us in salvation. I love Paul's words in Ephesians 1, 13-14. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, God unstopped your ears and you heard it. The gospel of your salvation. And you believed into Him. We're sealed, he says, with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Our being sealed in the Holy Spirit highlights the security we have, the guarantee we have that we will finish the race, acquire possession of the great prize of eternal life with God in glory. Paul made this same clarity in his second letter to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians 1, 21-22. It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So where does confidence come from? That I'm abiding in God and He in me? The Holy Spirit, in all of these ways, a guarantee, a seal. The words of Scripture time and time again speak of our security and the power of the Holy Spirit. This catapults our soul in abiding faith, great joy in our Lord. It's truly good news because we live in a world where nothing is truly secure or certain. And so this is a great ministry to us. I pray it is for you today. Look with me at the second marker. John gives us for confidence that we do indeed abide in God. If you've trusted Jesus as Savior and Lord, you have these guarantees, you have these markers. Confidence that we abide in God. Number, number two, confessing Jesus Christ. Look with me at verse 14 and 15. John 4, 14 through 15. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in Him and He in God. So again, John says, We have seen and now testify. This is his way of driving home for the beloved certainty, confidence. You know this. You've seen it. And now you testify of it. Of what? That God the Father did indeed send his beloved Son to be the Savior of the world. That's the testimony. 
We spent sufficient time on Palm Sunday a few Sundays ago looking at the arrival, the incarnation of Jesus as he took on flesh, lived without sin so that he would be a sufficient sacrificial lamb and substitutional sacrifice. If you missed that sermon, go back a couple. Be blessed by that time. Pray you are. Here is how Jesus forerunner, his announcer, John the Baptist, speaks of Jesus' arrival. Jesus is literally that day, as he proclaims this out loud, walking towards them. John 1, 29. John the Baptist says, look, pointing to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist is testifying. He's identifying the promised spotless lamb is Jesus. Here's how Isaiah prophesies his coming long before that. In Isaiah 53, 6-7, We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. He opened not his mouth. Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, taking on the wrath we deserve, opening not his mouth faithfully seeing it through to the end. This is the good news of Jesus, the sacrificial spotless lamb who takes away the wrath due our sin. God's righteous wrath does not hang over those who are alive in Christ because it's been propitiated. This is what we talked about on Good Friday. It's been appeased. It's been satisfied. And therefore we are forgiven and justified. We are saved Jesus indeed is our mighty Savior. It is His perfect righteousness that is then imputed, credited, laid upon us in Christ. In His advocacy for us, in His atoning work on our behalf, His righteousness is put on me. My sin guilt is put on Him. And God sees his righteousness on me, and I'm declared holy. I'm declared forgiven. I'm able to now know God, be restored to him, abide in God. This is Jesus' atoning work on the behalf of his elect. And that leads me back to John's emphasis here, because we read a verse like this, and we've got to make sure we continue to read it within the context of all of Scripture. 1 John 4.14, we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. That is true. It is wonderfully true. But that, isn't, that doesn't necessarily mean what sometimes we say it means. John already said this in this very letter, chapter 2, verse 2, 1 John 2.2. 2, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So let's slow for a moment and consider what John means by Jesus' pain for the sins of the whole world, being the Savior of the world. Other passages in Scripture seem to speak this way about whom, for whom Jesus died. 
Some passages in Holy Scripture can seem to say that Jesus died for all of the sins of every person in the entire world. Maybe there's some here today who have believed this, who maybe still believe this. I just read a passage in John's Gospel where John the Baptist is proclaiming, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? It seems to be the case that that's who did Jesus die for? Everybody. So let's ask, did Jesus pay for the sin of every person in the entire world? Now how do we answer that? We answer that because my answer is what I think is the best answer. What I want the answer to be. The way I grab a couple of verses out of context and say, see, we must let Scripture interpret Scripture and not interject our own longings on it. We, not, it must be, we must not be guilty of reading Scripture out of its God-intended context. The Holy Scriptures are clear to teach that Jesus' atonement on the cross was not for all people in the world, but for God's elect people who are from all over the world. A worldwide people chosen of God before time. We know that many die in their sin and go to hell and pay for their sin in eternal judgment. So it cannot be true that Jesus paid for, propitiated the sin of everyone. If he appeased the wrath due sin for everyone, then they, then they would not be guilty of sin and therefore need to pay for it themselves. So we need to ask, who is then the world in the reference of these passages? In verses like this, world is a reference to the salvation that Jesus brings also for the Gentiles. Speaking largely to a, a Jewish culture, Gentiles are non-Jews, right? The Jews were God's chosen people, right? If you have issues with God choosing some and not all, you're not reading Holy Scripture for all throughout Holy Scripture, God is always choosing some and not all. He picked one people group. These are my people in the Old Covenant. And, and we want to pull back off of that and say, no, no, there's this, there's this fair thing that we want to put on God in our definitions As we studied before, God's elect, those whom He chose before time to save, will represent every tribe and tongue and nation. And not just the Jews. That is an emphasized teaching in much of the New Testament because that is a very big revolutionary shift in how many of the Jews were thinking God's atonement was going to work. So it's said often there is a worldwide people who are my people for whom Jesus saves. That's, that's what is meant in these verses. God's people are not just those of one ethnic group or generation. Paul says this clearly in Romans 9, 8. This means it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, speaking of the Jews, not just of this one group, but the children of the promise 
who are counted as offspring. The promise, the election of God for a worldwide people, God's elect for those those for whom Christ died would be a worldwide people made not just of Jews, but from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Revelation 5.9 For you were slain, speaking of Jesus, by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. From. Ransomed people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Not ransomed every tribe and tongue and nation. In its totality, a people from. Jesus speaks to this, John 10, 14 through 16. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. There are some, not all, who are mine. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. So, contrary to the sad work of many modern Bible teachers, churches, denominations, the historic tenet of the Christian faith, solidified, agreed upon by the historic confessions in unity, is the doctrine of limited atonement also called definite atonement or particular atonement. The Word of Truth Catechism defines it in a succinct way this way. Limited atonement is Christ's work on the cross. It was not done for every human to ever live. Rather, it was done exclusively for God's elect, who are chosen, a chosen people from throughout all of human history that represent every tribe, tongue, and nation. In doing this, Christ accomplished substitutionary atonement for the chosen ones by canceling the debt of all their sin, appeasing God's holy wrath, and earning all the benefits of their salvation. Perfectly. Jesus died, according to Matthew one twenty one. She will bear a son, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people, his chosen people, from their sins. His elect people, not all people, every person in the entire world. Jesus' blood was spilled. Watch this. He drank the cup of wrath, due sin, perfectly for every person God chose, God willed, God knew he would save. Propitiation is made for their sin. God's wrath is appeased perfectly. God didn't have to guess at that. He didn't have to pad his numbers. Right? That's not the God of the Bible. He created every one of us for his mighty purpose and plan. So when we read in 1 John 4.14, we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. We need to understand John is speaking of a worldwide people of whom God perfectly chose before time. Ephesians 1, 4-5, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. 
In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. If Jesus truly died for the sins of the whole world, then that would mean the entire world's sins are paid for, and while surely Jesus is capable of doing this, limited atonement is not saying that Jesus is not able. Limited atonement it says that it declares everything that God does is perfect in its aim and its purpose. We know from Holy Scriptures that not all are saved. Hell is real. The penalty of sin for many is real. Many remain under God's wrath. That said, praise God for His grace and His will to save many. And again, when you feel stirred to go, why not just save them all? That is an... It's an arrogant statement. Because when we go there, what we do is we make, we make man big and God small. But when we rightly see the guilt of man in sin and God's holiness and standard, the fact that He wills that in His mercy, in His grace, He saves any floors us. For we are small and God is massive. Praise God for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Praise God for the propitiation of our sin because of our advocate, Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12 There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now look with me at verse 15. 1 John 4.15 Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. This is a callback to John's point earlier in the chapter when he's speaking of those who do not confess Jesus as the eternal Son of God. Their confession or testimony is heretical because they reject the fundamental biblical truth about Jesus' eternality. They reject the truth that Jesus is indeed God the Son, eternal and fully God. Listen to how John said this in 1 John 4, 1 through 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Spirit there is not elemental. It's a reference to false teachers. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. A heresy is a false belief or false doctrine that goes against Scripture that is major, leading to damnation, leading to destruction. It, it is an error you cannot have and have the gospel intact. We cannot declare that Jesus is somehow God's creation that, or something else. He is eternally God the Son as Scripture declares. So it is heresy to say otherwise. 
Heresy is such an error and offense to God that it causes someone to believe in a different God or a different gospel. It's an error that means that person is not saved. They, they do not belong to God. Or as John will say in today's passage, they do not have the Spirit of God. So why is this so important? Why does John circle back to this again and again? Why is it so important that we identify and avoid and warn of heresies? Because of the level of destruction that comes with them. Because it's a matter of life and death. You are either promoting life through biblical truth or you're promoting death through man-made heresy. This is why it's damnable and falsehood that, that leads people to destruction. I say all this because the heresy or the error of misbelief that Jesus is not eternally God the Son or that He didn't incarnate or fulfill the work of the promised Messiah is not just defective theology. It is diabolical theology. What does that mean? It means it's from the devil. John's emphasis in verse 15 is to say that those who have a proper confession that Jesus is indeed the Son of God belong to God. They abide in God and God abides in them. And this should be a point of great confidence. Not in my knowledge, like confidence in me, no, in the fact that I have a biblical confession of who God is and what He's done. Not a heretical one. Not, not something that's built out of Scripture. 1 John 4.15 Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. Another great confidence that we will abide in God and God in us. That we have a proper confession that Jesus is eternally God the Son who put on flesh to come and save His people from their sin. And so I just want to ask you, make it personal today as we work through this. What is your confession regarding who Jesus is? We must have a proper confession and belief that Jesus is God the Son, is worthy of all of our faith and life. If you have mustered up, wired up, built up, grabbed hold of something else, this must be of great concern. And when it is biblically grounded in the proper confession of who He is according to Scripture, it should be of great confidence to you. Your confession is your testimony of what you believe and who you believe in. If your testimony is to say that Jesus is not eternally God the Son, who put on flesh and died in the place of many and rose again from the grave, if you believe, it, if you believe Jesus is someone else, if you believe Jesus is not eternally God, then you do not believe in the one and only Christ. The only one who saves. Then your confession, your belief is not saving. For you believe in a false God, or you have a fundamental error of what you believe. That means you promote a different gospel. Does that mean all hope is lost for you? No. For many, it come out of really messed up theology. Churches, doctrine, beliefs, self-made roads of spiritualism and, and self-defined things. Many of you who sit here, that's your testimony. There was a thought that I, I belonged to Him. I had a right understanding of these things. And God broke in with 
the authority of the Word and gave you a biblical view, a, a solid confession of who He is according to Him, not according to anything else. And it was marvelous in your life. And for some, saving, saving in your life. Truly, finally saved. Our confession of Jesus must be true to who He is. Matthew 10, 32-33, Everyone who acknowledges Me before men, I will acknowledge before My Father, who is in heaven. But he who denies Me before men, I will also deny before My Father, who is in heaven. So other religions who have a wrong view of Jesus are not professing the Christ. They're not saved. They believe in a false God. Romans 10, 9-10, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Paul encourages Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 12, Fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. A good and right confession. In all of these, we see proper confession of Jesus Christ, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, are the ones who are affirmed as abiding in God and God abiding in them. This is meant to be truly a great confidence in our life and faith. And so with that now under our feet, look, look with me at the final marker we see in verse 16 and 17. Confidence that we abide in God because we abide in God's love. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because he is so, also are we in this world. We have come to know, he says. Look at that, verse 16. We have come to believe. The love that God has for us. Again, church, hear confidence language. You know, you believe. Be confident. That you indeed are a Christian. That you abide in the living God. Because you know His love. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God and God in him. This is his point. God is love. John fundamentally and most famously said that in verses I read at the opening of the sermon that we studied over the weeks prior. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. If you are going to know true love, you must know the true God, who is love. You cannot know true love if you do not know God personally. Only if God has saved you through the blood of Jesus in your place and given you saving faith in Him alone. Now in verse 16, John essentially says this again, but takes it further because now he's using abiding language instead of just knowing language. 
Don't get me wrong, both of these are incredibly intimate ways we talk about our union with God. Both are wonderfully good. Because we don't just know about Him when it says we know Him. No, we know Him personally. We know Him. Right? You, you, you can't have spent 30 seconds with someone famous and then tell everyone for the rest of your life, oh, I know that guy. No, you don't. You might know a lot about him, but you don't know him personally. Right? No, no, in Christ we know God. We've been reconciled to him. If God has saved you through the blood of Jesus, given you saving faith in Jesus alone, you know him. Scripture is clear to say even the demons knew a lot about Jesus. They had a better proclamation of who he was than many other people. But the demons are damned forever. Why? Because while they knew a lot about him, they did not know him. Did not trust themselves to him. Were not reconciled to him. They do not abide in him. If we know the love that God has for us, if you really know that, not just know about it, but you know it, then you abide in His love. And God abides in you. Remember the word abide means to stay fixed, to continue the course, to endure, to remain. When we are saved by God and therefore know God, we get to abide in God. We get to be fixed in Him, endure in Him, remain in Him. This is a great confidence to us. Christian, you must see the indestructible foundation it is to your life in faith. You are rooted, you're grounded, you're secure in God, in His power, in His work. It's not built on your performance. If it's built on your performance, then you should be really worried that you're going to get demoted, that you're going to lose it. But that's not the gospel. So you don't need to be worried because it's built 100% on his performance in your place. So we have confidence. He's done this work. He's given me this gift. God has confirmed this confidence in you by sealing you with the Holy Spirit, by giving you a proper testimony of who Jesus is as the Son of God the promised Savior of the world, and by giving you access to the rich, true love of God. All of this is to help us abide, remain, walk in Him. And look how he builds on this in the final verse. Verse 17, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because he is so also are we in the world. John says, by this, God's love's perfecting in us. By what? By our abiding in Him and Him in us. His attribute of love is perfected in us. So what is that then? What, what is that work of perfecting it in us? It is the work of progressive sanctification. It is the work of maturing in the Lord. It is the work of the fruit of the Spirit. Our study in midweek gathering right now has been wonderful. We're studying the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22-23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, 
This Wednesday, I get to teach on goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. God's love through the Spirit is perfected in us as we mature in the Lord. As we abide in the vine, abide in the vine, remain fixed on the vine, the Spirit of God grows His great attributes in and through our lives, producing the fruit of the Spirit. This is how someone who was an arrogant monster, a mean criminal, a selfish, conniving, prideful person. You can meet them in later stages of life after they're saved and are being sanctified and go, who are you? Because there is an internal change that God's doing to produce a different person with different longings, different goals, and different way of doing life. Not perfected person, but one who is being made perfect, being made holy. Jesus says in John 15, 5, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Christian does not grow fruit. Christian, your goal, even as we study the fruit of the Spirit, is not to try to do these things better. Branches don't grow fruit. You don't believe me? Go lay a branch on the dirt. Go lay it on the concrete and just wait. Water it even. It won't grow fruit. The fruit is grown from the vine through the branch. We have to be in Him He is life. He is the vine. And so therefore we don't effort to be more self-controlled like the world does. That's all they have. For they're separated from Him. No, we grow in Christ. We abide in Christ. We remain fixed on Him. If you want to see more fruit in your life, you don't work on the growing out. You work on the growing in. You spend more time in His Word, more time around mature believers who reorient in you, more time in prayer, more time growing into Christ, and He produces the fruit of the Spirit in you. That's why it's called the fruit of the Spirit and not the fruit of fill in your name. With that reminder under our belt, hear it again. 1 John 4, 17, God is love. Whoever abides in Him abides in God, and God abides in Him. Verse 17, by this is love perfected with us. See the wonderful work of God to mature us, to sanctify us unto holiness and perfection. This is His gracious work in all who believe in Him, producing and perfecting the fruit of the Spirit as we abide in Him, as we grow and cling to Him. And then finally, in that last part of 17, by this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Do you remember John essentially said this in chapter 2, 28, 1 John 2, 28, And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, you may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame in His coming. We are to abide in Him so that when He appears, we have confidence. We don't shriek, shrink back in shame. We're fixed in Him. We're grounded in Him. We're ready for Him. Our faith 
can't therefore then be something is just on the shelf. Your faith must be active. Your faith can't just be something you do on Sunday mornings or at, at dinner time prayer. Or worse, it can't, your faith can't be just linked to something you did back in the day and you like have like this trophy shelf of all these great things you did in the church and for the kingdom back here and you just kind of hang your hat on that now. Your faith remains active. You continue to mature. You remain active in the work of the church because God's not done with you. Because you belong to Him. And you are ready for His return. And there will be many days when your faith and devotion to Christ is really tested. And maybe you're feeling that right now. It's being tested among unbelieving family or friends or co-workers. Among civil authorities that, that are threatening the loss of God-given freedoms. Maybe among relationships with others where you're being tempted to shrink back and compromise in order to keep them in your life. Jesus was clear to say in Luke 9.26, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Christian, let me ask you, just do business with this as we close. Are you abiding in Christ? Are you so in love with him, growingly in love with him, so full of faith, growing in faith, that if everything in your life gets stripped away and all you have is Jesus, you are satisfied, you are faithful. You're able to join Paul in Philippians 3.8. You're ready to count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ your Lord. For His sake, you are ready to suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that you remain in Christ. Krishna, are you ready for His return? Jesus Himself said, we must be ready, Matthew 24.44. Therefore, you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at the hour you do not expect. Are you aware of just how short this life is in comparison to eternity? It is short, but we must make the most of it. You've given us today, let's do business. Don't waste time. Time is precious. Don't overcling to temporary things, temporary status, and working towards retirement and these goals. That has to be adjusted, that we'd steward God's thing for God's purposes. Revelation twenty two twenty. Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Are you ready? Are you confident? Not in yourself, but in the record of Jesus alone. Let me just ask you again. Are you guilty of not getting your house in order? Are you guilty of always postponing these God-given priorities? Oh, I'll get to it soon. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Let me just work on this a little longer. Let me just get this part of my life tucked in. Maybe even being so bold to say, let me just sin a little longer. Can't delay. We must abide in Him today and every day that He gives us so that we're ready. So we have confidence for the day of judgment. Jesus said it well, Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. Psalm 118.6, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. 
what can man do to me? Amen? May our faith abound. May we abide in him and have the confidence built on these markers he's given us. A great confidence in our life, no matter what we face. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this wonderful, rich time in your word to slow down and really break it down and really understand these layers of what John is teaching here, what you've ordained for us to have and to know that, that we're constantly being corrected and, and matured and we're growing. And for some, Lord, we're being made alive. You're, you're saving. You're breaking down these walls of pride and sin. You're, you're giving a, a humble, sweet surrender to Jesus as Lord. A readiness to grow and to mature as an infant in the faith, but as one who belongs to Christ now and forever. And for the Christian, the blood-bought Christian who knows you, Lord, that there is a confidence, there is an abiding that's maturing us, that, that's keeping us ready for your return, that's, that's, that's keeping us not too focused on all the temporary, but joyfully focused on the eternal realities of how you are at work in the world, through the church in the word, world, in the word. Lord, we, we are joyful to have your love, to know your love, that your love is at work in and through us. And so as we celebrate that, as we celebrate this gospel truth, stir us to motion, stir us to doing and not just to hearing. Repentance and faith and obedience for your glory and for many others' good and for our joy. In Jesus' mighty, victorious name we pray.